Okay. Uh, well, good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome on this day. We are going to uh, pray for our nation in just a minute, this momentous election day. Uh, but before we do that, do you have any questions for me? None. Seriously. Y'all are just chomping at the bit about the election, aren't you? You're just like, I don't know. I don't care. Well, let's pray. Uh, let's pray for today uh, in this study and today for our nation uh, before we get started. Uh, Father God in heaven, um, we come before you today anxious to hear from you, to hear from your word. Uh, Father, we come before you wanting you to speak to us uh, through your word, so I ask that you do that. Father, I also pray for our nation and for the elections um, that are going on even in this building right now, Father. Father, I woke up this morning with a thought, Father, have mercy upon us. Uh, and so I pray your mercy upon our country. Uh, Father, I pray your will be done. Um, but most of all, Father, uh, I know uh, and I believe that the words that were sung in this very room last week, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, are true and they will be true today, tomorrow, forever, no matter what happens today. And so I thank you and I praise you that you are a sovereign God who is in control. May we give you that control that you already have. May we yield it to you in our lives, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we're going to begin with verses 12 through 18, uh, and we're going to read through those, and then, then we're going to read a couple of other verses and then come back sort of piece by piece on 12 through 18. Uh, and uh, so beginning with verses 12 through 18, uh, it says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing." But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now I wanted you to have that overview before we back out, but this whole passage begins with the word, therefore. And so whenever you see that word, then you need to, to go back and see what that's based on. And it's actually not just based on the immediately preceding passage, but we'll begin there because what Paul is doing here is he is, he is working out, oops, I'm going the wrong way. He, oh, no, 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 no. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll learn to use this. It's only got three buttons. How hard can it be? <laughs> he's working out the Christ hymn. He's applying the Christ hymn, verses 5 through 11, to the situation in Philippi. So to remind ourselves of that, in verse, uh, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul writes, your attitude should be the same or you should have the same attitude among yourselves 
as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of or something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he's taking this passage in 12 through 18, and, and he's applying that Christ him to it, and so he's saying, therefore, and that's a reference to this passage we just read, that therefore, since Christ has obeyed, you obey. Uh, and so this is saying how they are to live out the same kind of obedience that Jesus had. But he's actually going back even further than that because check out in this the similarities between this passage and the one we just read in 12 through 18. This is uh, Philipp, oh, I forgot to read that part, sorry. Okay, uh, how, am I, uh, Chelsea, no, I'm not ready. She asked me if I was ready. No, that's definitively the answer there. Uh, in, in Philippians 1, chapter 27 through 30, he's also applying what he said there. He said, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him since you are now going through uh, the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So you can see there then that there are similarities between that passage and this passage. And so Paul is giving them in verses 12 through 18 of chapter, through, after, of chapter 2 get, telling them how they can live out the implications of their faith consistently, whether he's there and watching or whether he's not there or watching, this is how they are part of how they are to live that out. So he is further explaining what it means in these verses to conduct oneself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now he makes three points in verses 12 through 18. The first in chapter, in, uh, excuse me, verses 12 and 13 uh, that's an encouragement to continue in obedience, to continue obeying as Christ obeyed. Uh, uh, verses 14 through 16a, the first part of 16, is an exhortation to live specifically in one area of obedience, which has to do with complaining and arguing. And he says don't. Uh, and then in the last verses, 16b to 18, he is relating their own struggle to, be, to become blameless and pure with his own. And so he's, once again, in Philippians, um, identifying with the Philippians and their struggle and their, their faith. So he begins in verses 12 through 13, essentially saying, keep up the good work. Therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Um, so the therefore is essentially saying, in view of Christ's obedience, in view of that humble self-sacrifice, you obey. That should be your motivation to obey. Not just when I'm with you, but when I'm gone, when I'm absent as well. And then the, the part of this 
these two verses that has caused the most trouble and the most interpretive difficulty is this line. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, what possibly could that mean? I mean, isn't this a contradiction? Isn't this the same salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone guy? Isn't that his mantra? Yes, it is. And there is no contradiction. So I'd like to make three points about this. First, he immediately after saying that says, do this because God is doing the work in you. So he immediately makes the point that it is God who is at work in them. He actually may have been concerned after saying, continue to work out your salvation, that they might get the wrong idea. So he wanted to clarify, because it is God who, who is working. Secondly, I'd like to point out that Paul says, work out your salvation. He does not say, work for your salvation. Um, and there's, there's a difference there, obviously. I think because he has in mind here that they should emulate Christ's obedience, that whatever he's saying by saying work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what he is talking about is their obedience, that he is encouraging them to obey as Christ obeyed. So whatever this sentence means, uh, it must be tied up with the Philippians and actually our obedience to God. So then what does he mean? Well, first let me start, because you know I love to do this. What doesn't he mean? There are theologians who say that what he means by salvation there is something different than our full and final salvation, a sort of, they'd call it a full-orbed view of salvation. Uh, but uh, that he means something less. And there are very rare occasions, and never in the Bible, places where that word for salvation can mean well-being. So he's saying, work out your well-being with one another uh, with fear and trembling. Uh, and, and to say to do that with fear and trembling doesn't make sense. But even more important uh, is that everywhere where Paul uses this word, everywhere, it means salvation in Christ, our full and final salvation. That would mean that this is the one place in Paul where it doesn't. And that uh, does not make sense. So I believe he absolutely does mean uh, our full and that we are to work out our salvation in Christ. So then, what does he mean? Well, to understand that, we have to, to talk about the difference between justification and salvation. Because there is a difference. They are related to one another. If we are justified, we are saved. If we are saved, we are justified. But there's a difference between those two things. Remember, our justification is being made right with God. And everywhere where Paul writes about justification, he writes of it as a past event for believers. It is, um, it, and, it, and it, everywhere where he writes about it, he says that it was achieved by Jesus, that, that our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is nothing we can earn. It is nothing we deserve. It is all because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's our justification. Salvation, on the other hand, in, in Paul's writing and in the Bible, is something that is past, present, and future. There's a future component. Theologians call it the already and the not yet. Because y'all, you know, you get this, you're saved, right? Are you perfect? Is everything good? Is the world okie dokie? 
No, doesn't matter who wins today. World's not still going to be okie dokie. And so there is a not yet component to our salvation. It has not been fully consummated. And so Paul can at one and the same time refer to our salvation as a done deal, because it is a done deal, and yet there is a part of it that awaits us on the day of Christ Jesus when our salvation will be finalized. Uh, and so uh, although our salvation is assured, in, it, there's a very real sense in which we are looking forward to our final salvation on that final day. So therefore what Paul is saying here is that the Philippians should obey. They should conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel as they await the final affirmation of their right standing with God that Jesus has already won for them on the cross. So he's encouraging them to continue to obey, to, to be sanctified, to grow in Jesus. And they have a part in that. They have a part in obedience. Um, but even so, even that is the work of God. And he tells them to do that with fear and trembling, which makes more sense uh, if he's talking about obedience rather than their well-being. Uh, that they should do so with fear and trembling is a reminder of how serious this is. That this isn't a game that, that we're playing. That sin is something uh, not to take lightly. Yeah, I sinned. NBD. For those of you over 50 like me, that means no big deal. That's text speak for no big deal. God will forgive me, whatever. No, 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 no. Our sin costs God the life of his son. It's a big deal. Our sin's a big deal. It's a big deal to God and it should be a big deal to us. Um, and so that fear and trembling part is a reminder that this is not a game, that we are to obey, not in order to be saved, but because of the price, the price that Jesus Christ paid in order for us to be made right with God. And then he turns around immediately and reminds them, however, that it has nothing to do with your work. It has everything to do with what God has already done. And he says, do this, obey, conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Our justification, our salvation, both are from beginning to end entirely God's work and not ours. Not only that, but when it says here that it is God who works to will and to act, that means that it is God who gives us both the desire and the ability to obey. And we would not be able to apart from that. Why does he do that? Why does he give us the desire and ability to obey? So that God might work out his good purpose in our lives and in his world. So then in verses 14 to 16, Paul compares the... Um, the Philippians and believers to the grumbling Israelites. This is really good. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So now he gives them a more specific command. He gives them the general command to work out their salvation but now he tells them how to do that. And he says, one way to do that is don't complain or argue, ever. When my kids were little, we listened to a little thing. I highly recommend it if it's still around. 
Steve Green's Hide Them in Your Heart. Anybody else's kids listen to Steve Green? And this is one of the verses. It's, by the way, how I learned the fruit of the Spirit verse. Um, and so they, he comes on, and, he's, and there's music in the background, and he says nice little things. And he says, you know, this is a very interesting verse because it doesn't say do some things. It doesn't even say do most things. But it says do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, I don't know if that convicted my kids, but it sure convicted their mommy. You know, sweet little Steve, Steve Green, and then all these kids start saying, do everything without complaining, the whole thing. And I'm going like, oh, man, you know, listen, kids, please listen. You shouldn't be complaining. Uh, and so this is, a, this is specific to the situation at Philippi. What was happening in Philippi? They were arguing with one another. They were arguing with one another, and arguing almost always leads to complaining. You moms know that. Mom! I used to think, please, Lord, let there come a day when this treasured title that I have wanted all my life is not whined to me. <laughs> it's not said in a whiny voice. And I want to encourage you young mothers, there does come a day uh, when that, they leave the house. No, no. <laughs> You know, does that sound familiar? They argue, and so what do they do? They complain. They complain. And ladies, we do it too. So this is, this is not just uh, an exhortation for the church of Philippi or our children. This is for us too. It is aimed squarely at us as well. And he says, do everything without complaining and arguing. That word for complaining literally means grumbling. And the word is gongasmon, which I'm convinced is, is onomatopoeia. Because it really doesn't gongasmon, gongasmon, It just sounds like grumbling to me. And it was used frequently in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament of the Israelites wandering in the desert. We don't have any water, so God gave them water. We don't have any food, so God gave them manna. We don't like the manna, so God gave them quail. Why did you lead us out here in the desert? We're going to die. It would have been better to be left in Egypt. Really? Right? What? You know, no, it wouldn't have been better. The Israelites gongasmond their way through 40 years in the desert, complaining. Complaining about the food, complaining about the water, complaining about their leaders. Guess who they were complaining about? They were complaining about God. And that's true for us too, ladies, because ultimately when we complain about anyone or anything, what we are ultimately saying is, you did something wrong here. Because God is sovereign and we believe that. So if you wouldn't have let him do that, then I wouldn't be complaining. Ultimately, our complaints are against our holy, sovereign, good God who is working out his purposes in our lives. That's a pretty powerful po apologetic against complaining, isn't it? Um, so Paul uses the Israelites as an example to say, don't be like that. Don't be like the Gongasmani uh, Israelites grumbling against God. And then he gives them a reason why. He gives them two reasons why. The first one is in verses 15 through 16. Is it still up there? Oh, there it is. Okay. The first one is in verses 15 and 16. So that, this is how, this is the reason, you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars as you hold out the word of life. So the first reason 
that they are to not complain and argue is so that they may become blameless and pure. It's not so that they may become children of God. They are children of God. So that they may become blameless and pure, which essentially means so that your character may be molded into Christ's character. It may become more and more like the character of Jesus. But in this verse, we have more language from the wandering desert Israelites. Because Deuteronomy 32, 4, and 5 says of these wandering Israelites that they were not God's children. And it says they were full of fault, a crooked and depraved generation. Very much the same language. Um, And so again, he's saying that's how they are out there. Don't you be that way. Why? Because your witness is at stake. Your witness is at stake at this. If we are going to shine like stars to a crooked generation, if we are going to have a shining witness to to, uh, a perverse and crooked generation, then we must not complain and argue with each other. Because, ladies, the world sees that. They see us (laughs) with each other and they think, well, if they know Jesus and they're not any different and they're complaining and arguing with each other, how can this Jesus thing be true? And so that sort of complaining and arguing ruins our witness with the outside world. And in fact, when Jesus prayed for us in John 17, he prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and then he prayed for all those who would believe because of their witness. So he was praying for everyone who came to Christ from the time of his resurrection or his ascension till now. So in John 17, I I invite you to read that because I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you that he prayed one thing, one thing he prayed for us. You know what it was? That they may be one. And then he said, why? He said, so that the world may know the truth of the gospel. And that's a paraphrase. But that was the reason. So our unity, our treatment of one another has effect on our witnesses, on our witness toward others. And then in the NIV it says holding out the gospel. Actually the better uh, translation of that is holding on to the gospel. As you shine like stars in the universe to a perverse and crooked generation, holding on, clinging to the gospel of Christ. So essentially what he's saying is in this whole passage is we are not to complain and argue in order that we might be a shining witness in a crooked and perverse generation as we cling to Jesus and his gospel. That's beautiful. Uh, And then in verses 16 to 18, second half of 16, uh, Paul gives the second reason that we are not to um, complain or argue, and that is so that our uh, witness might be um, an offering acceptable to God. He says, uh, let's go back actually, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the, sacri- on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So the second reason for not complaining and arguing is in order that the offering of their lives might be acceptable to God. Paul refers to his life and his suffering, as well as the lives and suffering of the Philippians, as a drink offering. He sees his life and suffering as an offering to God, the offering that he is making to God. Uh, And and he 
wants the Philippians to view their lives and their sufferings similarly. He uses it as a, a metaphor. Uh, and he says, I want to be proud of you on the day of Christ Jesus. I want to be there with you and know that you persevered um, till the end. Now, when he uses that metaphor, when he says, e even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, he, he probably is referring to his death in some sense, that he's being poured out, that he's being spent like a drink offering. But it doesn't mean that he thinks he's going to die immediately. Because, and the reason I say that, in 2 Timothy, when he knew, he knew it was the end. I mean, he was nearly positively sure. There he says, I have already been poured out as a drink offering. So not even if, but this is happening. So he, know, he pro knows probably from the beginning, they're going to get me for this. There's no, there's no other way out for me but, but martyrdom. But he isn't saying that that's an immediate event in these verses. Um, and uh, so uh, then he calls for them to rejoice. Paul says, no matter what happens, if I live or die, if you live or die, no matter what happens, rejoice. Paul rejoiced. Regardless of his circumstances, he rejoiced because his joy was not dependent upon his circumstance. Neither should the Philippians' joy have been dependent on their circumstances, nor should our joy be dependent on our circumstances, even if the guy we want to win doesn't win today. Our joy is not dependent on that. Our joy is dependent on what God has already done for us in Christ, and that's a done deal no matter what happens to us. And God is still sovereign in heaven. Um, well, we're going to go through verses 19 through 30, and I debated whether to read them or not. I'm going to have them uh, up there for you. Uh, oh, heavens. Uh, okay, there we go. Um, I'm going to have them up there for you um, to read. I'm not going to read them out loud because I want to make sure we have time to end. And this is going to be kind of a whirlwind explanation of these verses, not because it's not important, not because there's not stuff we could glean from this. I read like 100 pages on these verses. So there's plenty of stuff there. It's just that in my humble opinion, we have bigger theological fish to fry. So, um, so I'm just going to give you kind of a whirlwind of these verses in which Paul explains why this letter is, is coming in the hands of Epaphroditus and not Timothy. Uh, because the Philippians probably expected that Epaphroditus would stay with Timothy and take care of him because that's why he was sent there. And that would free up... Um, Timothy to come back to bring Paul's news, the letter, this letter that we're studying, back to them and stay with them uh, to be their spiritual leader. And that's not what Paul did. And so uh, Paul is explaining why, why he's not meaning, meeting their expectations. So first he says, why not Timothy? Why is Timothy staying and not coming to you? And first he says, I need him. Paul truly needed Timothy. He says, I have no one like him. Uh, and, and he's in prison, and he needs Timothy. Secondly, he's confident that he, that he, Paul, will follow Epaphroditus soon. He said, you know, and I'm going to be with you shortly. I really do believe that. I really do believe I'll be, I'll be on Epaphroditus' heels almost. Um, and then finally, part of the reason for this passage is to hold Timothy up as an example to them of someone who conducts his life worthy of the gospel. And then in the next 
uh, paragraph, he says, then why Epaphroditus? Why am I sending Epaphroditus back so soon with this letter? Uh, and, and Paul says, look, I consider it necessary that I do this. He considered it a necessary decision to make. Because Epaphroditus wasn't just homesick. Epaphroditus wasn't just wanting to go. He was yearning to go home. It's like the first week of my freshman year, which was horrible, because I spent the whole time in my room crying because I missed home, just yearning to go back. Um, secondly, or thirdly, or whatever number I'm on, um, the Philippians had heard about Epaphroditus's illness, in which he almost died. They'd gotten wind of that. And Epaphroditus had heard that they had heard about his illness. It reminds me of the song my parents taught me when I was young. I was looking back to see if you were looking back to see if I was looking back to see if you were looking back at me. And do you remember that song? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, they, they had heard, and Epaphroditus had heard that they had heard, and Epaphroditus was a worry ward, apparently, because he was really worried that they were worried about him, uh, and, and so he, that was eating him up. I really think, honestly, I think that this whole situation was causing Paul a little bit of stress, but he didn't want to exactly say it that way. Uh, you know, that Epaphroditus is stressing me out, so I'm going to send him back to you. And then he says, welcome him. Welcome him, because he has lived a life worthy of the gospel, holds him up as an example as well. And he may have been trying to soothe their disappointment that Epaphroditus was coming back and not Timothy. Okay, so we're going to read uh, ch chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Um, I was going to read through the whole thing. Well... I think I can. We'll try it. We'll see what happens. This may or may not work. Um, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to, be, uh, to, to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legal, legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that... I need to go backwards. Okay, so what Paul is worried about here is actually the Judaizers again. Remember them from, from Galatians? And this whole passage is an apologetic against the Judaizers. It's also some of the most beautiful theology in the entire New Testament. Because he, Paul is afraid that those same Judaizers that had made inroads in Galatia were going to come to Philippi and do the same thing. Uh, and the Judaizers, just by way of reminder, taught that salvation comes from faith in Christ plus keeping the ceremonial law, including circumcision, their big bugaboo with cir circumcision, which Paul, in Galatians 1, says is no gospel at all. Uh, 
Now, the Judaizers were probably not yet entrenched in Philippi. Uh, we know that because, A, he doesn't address them directly. And this letter is much less harsh. I think you'll, you'll agree that it's much less harsh. Um, and they may have not even been there yet. Paul may have just gotten word of something that was happening and wanted to make sure he warned them. And Paul's concerned about it, obviously. So he begins by saying, rejoice. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. You know, in the two previous major sections of Philippians, uh, at the end of, of 2.18 and at the end of uh, 2.30, they both concluded with an exhortation to rejoice. And so once again here, he tells us to rejoice. Uh, he encourages the Philippians and us to rejoice, regardless of circumstance. You think he wants to get this message through? Yeah, he wants us to, to remember to rejoice no matter what. But for the first time, he says rejoice in the Lord. And what that means is to rejoice because of all the Lord has done for you. And that is true no matter what your circumstances are. Amen? And then he says, because it's a safeguard for you. And he's looking ahead to verses 2 and 4 when he says that. Because he's saying that our joy is a safeguard against falling for false doctrine. We are most susceptible to both sin and deception when we are downhearted. Worse yet, when we are refusing to be joyful. I call it having a pity party. When we just get in that place where everything's wrong. Everything's, and that's when we're open, we open ourselves up to thoughts like, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, my husband or my boyfriend never has treated me the way I wanted to be treated. Well, she always does that to me. Uh, and maybe Jesus really isn't the only way. Maybe this isn't right. And, and it's when we refuse to be joyful, when we get in that place where, where we are downhearted, where we are refusing to be joyful, that we begin to be led astray by these thoughts and by these uh, lies. And, and Paul's saying your joy is a safeguard against that. Um, so then he goes on uh, in, in verses 2 through 4a to talk about uh, the true circumcision. Who is it that is the true circumcision? He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So in, in these verses, and I'm not going to spend time talking about the Judaizers because I, we've already done that in, ad infinitum, but I do want to make a, a couple of, of points. First of all, in these verses, Paul is making a distinction between those who are and those who are not the true people of God. He did very much the same thing in Galatians when he talked about who are Abraham's true heirs. Abraham's true heirs are his heirs by faith, not by circumcision. And this is very much the same point. But what's the deal here with calling them dogs? You know? calling the Judaizers dogs. Well, these are the same guys that he said he just wished they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Um, but, and and there's, a, there's a pejorative sort of a negative connotation here, but I want you to understand that that word used in Judaism, in ancient Judaism, was different than we use it now. Um, because that was the word that was used for anyone who was outside the covenant. Anyone who was a Gentile was referred to as a dog. And Jesus even said to a woman, 
uh, I came only to the house of Israel, and I, I'm not going to give my food to the dogs. And the woman did not go, well, how can you call me a dog? No, she understood what he was saying. And she said, but even the dogs get scraps off their master's table. And he said, I have not seen such faith in Israel, and he healed her. So, so that was a term that was used that we look at and go, whoa, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't positive, wasn't a good thing, but it didn't have the, the same negative connotation that it would have for us. And so the Gentiles, according to this then, were not God's children. They were not Abraham's heirs. They were not the true circumcision. But Paul's point, beyond watch out for them, Paul's point is that the Judaizers are not the true children of God. In fact, the Jews are not the true children of God. Believers are the true, uh, the true children of God. They are the true circumcision. Because true circumcision, even in the Old Testament, was not a physical right. True circumcision was circumcision of the heart. And there are a number of verses uh, in the Old Testament that speak to this. True circumcision was a heart that is fully inclined to, belongs fully to God. And God has always been concerned with our hearts, not with whether or not we're circumcised. So it is faith in Christ that makes one right with God, not any physical right, R-I-T-E, or achievement that we can have. No action, no achievement can justify us, can make us right with God. And if anyone could have claimed that, it would have been Paul. If anyone had the right to claim that, it would have been Paul. And he's telling us, I can't claim it either. Let me tell you my resume, and even I can't claim that. And so he says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He had an impeccable achievement and and uh, inbreeding essay or uh, resume, um, and it's even more important than, or more impressive than the Judaizers, because he wasn't just circumcised. He was of the tribe of Israel's first king. He was a Pharisee. He had done everything by birth and by life, by achievement, needed to do to make him right with God. And guess what? It didn't. It didn't make him right with God. It couldn't make him right with God. Um, so then in verses 7 to 11, and I'm skipping over some stuff here, sorry. He's saying, you know what? That stuff that I thought, that impeccable resume that I thought was to my advantage... It was actually a disadvantage. It wasn't profit, it was loss. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul saw that, his, once he came to Christ, Paul saw his accomplishments for what they truly were. They were, as Dr. Thielman says, fleshly and fallible human efforts, tainted with sin, and therefore unable to receive God's approval. They were not prophets. 
They were not deposits into his bank of righteousness. They were actually withdrawals. They were loss. Uh, in fact, he considers everything a loss. Anything I've ever accomplished in my life at all is a loss. The whole thing is a loss. He goes even further. He says, I consider them rubbish. Um, in, in the NIV and other versions, they tried to kind of smooth that word out. It's a really strong word. Uh, anybody use King James? The word they use is dung, and that's the actual word. Poop, as my daughter would say, is what he's saying. He's saying, and I heard a pastor say this once, he's saying, I consider them a cow pie compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And knowing Christ then means submitting to his lordship. It means having a living, breathing, daily fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he talks about what that means then. What does it mean to know Christ? How, how, what, how, what is the result of knowing Christ? First he says to gain Christ and be found in him. When he says to be found in him, he means on that final day. On that day when he stands before Christ, he wants to be clinging to Jesus and his righteousness, not his own achievements. Not saying, well, I helped out at the open door mission. No, Jesus. This is my only answer, my final answer. It's Jesus. It's my only hope. That righteousness through faith in Christ that comes alone from God um, and is through Christ and all that he did on the cross and in the empty tomb. And then he says, attaining to the resurrection of the dead, somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Um, that sounds a little bit like he's uncertain. Somehow, I don't know how, somehow. Um, and I was going to tell you what that doesn't mean, but I'll tell you what it does mean. Um, it doesn't mean that he's achieving his righteousness uh, because obviously he's just emphatically said that's not the case. It's just that he did not want to presume upon the grace of Christ. Everywhere, Paul says, we need to persevere, we need to persevere. Are we saved? Is it a done deal? Yes. But even so, I don't want, I want to know Christ. I want to live for him as best as I can um, so that I will end up, so I, that will, I will be found in him. Uh, this is a reminder, a powerful reminder, that the world's definition of success is not God's definition of success. Anybody who knew Paul would have said, what happened, man? He was doing so well. He was, he was on the, you know, fast track, yeah. And then what happened? Something on that Damascus road, I don't know what. And if our thinking is distorted uh, in this area, on this point, that, that success is worldly success, it can lead us to a feeling of self-importance that is spiritually deadly, not just to us, but to the people around us. And that leads me to my concluding point. Uh, I remember saying last week that I wish God hit me over the head hard every week like he did last week. Uh, he heard that, I think. Because <laughs> he did it to me again. Um, and, and he did it to me through a book by Timothy Keller, which I highly recommend, called The Reason for God. We're reading it in Sunday school. Um, and and in, a, in a chapter called um, Religion and the Gospel, Timothy Keller talks about... Um, about the difference between every other way of come, uh, being made right with God and the gospel. And what hit me was the Pharisee that still, after all these years, resides in me. And that even though I believe this, I way too often live like verses 4 through 6. If anyone has reason to boast, I have more. 
too often I live like that. In chapter 11 of that book, um, Tim Keller defines religion as righteousness of my own, through my own effort or achievement, which is every other way except the gospel. And he defines the gospel as God's acceptance that comes solely through what Christ has already done for us. And then he says, but you know what? Even within that other way, there are two forms of self-righteousness. Listen to these words. Sin and evil are self-centeredness and pride that lead to oppression against others. But there are two forms of this. One form is being very bad and breaking all the rules. And the other form is being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. The first is by saying, I'm going to live my life the way I want. The second is described by Flannery O'Connor, who wrote about one of her characters, Hazel Motes, that he knew the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, model, and helper, but you are avoiding him as Savior. You are trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You are trying to save yourself by following Jesus. That, ironically, is rejection of the gospel of Jesus. And then Tim Keller later calls that Phariseeism, and he talks about how damaging that is, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us. Uh, And he says, self-salvation through good works may produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life, But inside, you are filled with self-righteousness, cruelty, and bigotry, and you are miserable. You are always comparing yourself to other people, and you are never sure you are being good enough. You need a complete transformation of the motives of your heart. Keller goes on to say that because Pharisees like this experience internal anxiety and insecurity and anger, um, that spills out into the people around them. That, 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 that they, they know they're not living up to what they're supposed to be, and so that eats them up inside, and then that spills out to the people around them, and that confuses the people around them, and it makes the gospel very uncompelling, oftentimes, and I know this, to their own children. And I saw myself in that. That hit me, because, ladies, ironically, that verse, those verses 7 through 11 are part of my life passage. And they have been for a long time. And I've said, this is it. If I had to distill my life down to one thing, it's I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And yet too often, that's not what I'm concerned with in reality. In reality, I'm more concerned that that I, I live like a Pharisee, to do the right things in my own flesh in order to look good. Not necessarily to God, but to other people. And that's worse. I want them to think that I'm, that I'm godly and, and that I know what I'm talking about and, and that I'm smart and that I'm a good mother. I want to look good. And that's not the point of these passages. And so once more as I studied this and as God convicted me to my core about this, my, the, my heart cried out to God, And as I steeped myself again in a passage of Philippians, I'm telling you right now, I was supposed to teach this this semester. My heart cried out, Lord, may I be found in Christ, both on that final day and on this very day. May I be found in Christ, 
not having a righteousness that, of my own that comes from trying to look good, but having a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith in Christ, so that I might know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you know not only my heart, you know all our hearts, Father. You know that too often, and I, I imagine I'm not alone in this room, I'm much too worried about what other people think about me. Father, help me to live, help all of us to live for an audience of one because it is only your opinion of me that matters. It's only your opinion of us that matters. And you already love us. You've already accepted us. Help us to live vibrantly that truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies. One more week. That's it. We're done.